0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema.
0: This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about the 1940 uh, size-related thriller, Dr. Cyclops. You know that line, that classic Hollywood line about how I stayed big, it's the pictures that got small? Well... (laughs) You can't say that about this movie because this movie is
1: really truly about actors getting small that's right uh, uh this is this is our first 1940s film i mean barely since it's a 1940 release mm-hmm. uh but yeah i was uh this is one i was i was not familiar with i'd never heard of it uh, despite the fact that it has a pretty famous director who we'll, we'll get into more about in a second but it's ernest b showed um who if that if that name doesn't ring a bell i think his most famous film will for you it was of course king kong
0: yeah this uh this movie I, I thought it was a real firecracker. Like it, it looks great. It has amazing special effects. Uh, the, the story isn't as complex as, as you might hope. But then again, I mean, this was a, I don't know, a horror thriller of the, of the 1930s and forties of the, of the Hayes Code era. So, uh, you can only expect so much, uh, moral and intellectual complexity, but just as a big special effects thriller, the kind of, uh, transformers or independence day of 1940, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it it's it's fantastic.
1: Yeah, and I think that's ultimately the way you have to approach it. It is a it is a 1940 special effects fiasco um when the special effects very much come first. Um and you know, by today's standards they might not look as uh you know as amazing, but if you but 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 that's again only if you're looking at it as, as a modern viewer and not thinking about the history of filmmaking because i think if you if you sit there and watch the film in its entirety and and keep reminding yourself like this is 1940 uh you know this is what had been done before with similar effects uh, and and it, it will impress you Oh, I think the special effects in this movie do look fantastic. I mean, I I think they they
0: look so much better than the quote realistic CGI that that floods the films of today. <laughs>
1: well, that's true. Yeah, I mean it. Uh, it you know, it, it's it's very polished. You know, using the tools of the day, it it creates, uh, I think, some high quality visuals.
0: So this is we've talked about a number of mad scientist movies, and I'm sure we will talk about many more mad scientist movies in the future. Mad scientists are, are kind of the, the hub of the wheel of yeah. of Weird House Cinema. And this uh, this particular mad scientist is a mad scientist who likes to shrink people with radiation.
1: Yes, uh, the villainous Dr. Thorkel. And yeah, he's pretty great because he's you know, I guess his his real defining characteristic is he's a complete megalomaniac, you know? Yes. He already Feels himself to be a giant among tiny people, and his super science just enables him to make that, uh, you know, a, an, an objective reality. Now, I think Doctor Thorkel would
0: probably shrink you to death for the way you oh, pronounced yes. his name. Because of the one, it, one of the funny things in this movie, so his name is spelled T H uh, O R K E L. So I read that, and like any other normal American English speaker, I would think Thorkel. Yeah, if I had to go to an appointment with Doctor Thorkel, I would call and be like, yeah. I I'm the patient of Dr. Thorkels, uh, but the characters in this movie make a really special effort to always emphasize the second letter uh, so it's like Sar doe, no Mr accent on the doe here we get Thor kel, no Mr it's doctor accent on
1: the Kel. <laughs> Dr. Thor kel. yeah, and in this picture you can i mean you can basically. Well, here's the elevator pitch. A mad okay. scientist working in the South American jungle miniaturizes his colleagues when he feels his megalomania is threatened. So it's basically it's a it's apocalypse now, but with Dr. Thor Kell instead of Colonel Kurtz, science instead of war, and miniaturization instead of the horror
0: i'd say that's about accurate yeah and in well and instead of martin sheen it's a ragtag team of the world's greatest scientists and a mule guy
1: yeah and instead of spending like a large portion of the film about the journey that journey is really quick in this one (laughs) they just yeah you right through it should we hit that trailer audio yeah let's hear it
0: to them a crocodile becomes as huge as a prehistoric monster a rifle as unwieldy as a siege gun, a terrifying black cat whose jaws mean death, a dog looms larger than an elephant, death in the hands of a ruthless monster.
1: All right, so let's talk about the, the people involved here. Really, the, the one we're going to spend the most time on is, of course, the director, Ernest B. Schoedsack. I
0: know almost nothing about the life of, of Shodzak except that he is involved with one of the, the great early uh, uh, special effects and I don't know what you might call it, science fiction horror films of, of the uh, the big studio era, which is King Kong.
1: Yeah, I mean, really, uh, King Kong, it, 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 it despite being very much a genre film, it transcends genre. Like it is uh, – it, it that film is an icon of cinematic history itself. You know, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of difficult to overstate its importance in the history of film. But he, uh, and, and, and certainly, you, I think you Mystery Science Theater 3000 fans would agree, it is a great ape movie. Um, but <laughs> Shodzak also directed another great ape movie, and that would be Mighty Joe Young. So if you're not familiar with King Kong for reasons unimaginable, then perhaps you've heard of Mighty Joe Young. Did that get some
0: kind of remake in the 1990s
1: yes it did uh, goodness I forget who was in it but they had uh, it, mighty Joe young is a, an, is a is an enlarged ape as well but not nearly as enlarged as King Kong <laughs> it's a medium
0: enlarged ape
1: yeah and I think uh, I've seen some account some uh, some comparisons it, just in the the, in the same way that Godzilla gets keeps getting bigger and bigger in films mm-hmm. uh, King Kong also inevitably just gets bigger and bigger uh, but Mighty Joe young was always a, a smaller giant ape
0: So some of this guy's big movies seem all focused on changes in size perspective, either really big creatures or really little creatures, smaller than they're supposed to be. And this is funny because I I think there were... This is sort of the A-list version of that kind of director, but there were also B-list versions of that kind yes. of director because you get uh, people like Bert I. Gordon, who made B-movies, almost all of which are about creatures of unusual size, either yeah. like a a person or a t- creature that gets shrunken down, or creatures that get blown up real big.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, I I think ultimately Bert I. Gordon was able to make some 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 really interesting films Uh, but they're generally not put on the same pedestal as king kong
0: none of them look as beautiful as dr cyclops does another thing that dr cyclops really has going for it with the modern release especially or at least the the blu-ray of it that we watched uh the the it it has three color Technicolor and the Technicolor is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. The colors are just dripping off the screen.
1: Yeah, it, in a similar way to Doctor X, though that was not Technicolor. That was what two tone Technicolor, T- two color Technicolor. Yeah, yeah this is three color. So this is like the the color you know color films that would come later. Yeah. So there's a certain unreality to it, uh, but it's beautiful, uh, and and it certainly. I mean, I. I find it more engaging than a a lot of black and white films of the period. Uh, Just, you know, I guess it depends. Like, you wouldn't want to see Mad Love in color. Mad Love belongs in black and white. Like, that is the world of of that film. Uh, But this one really benefits from the color. Well, and taking
0: place in the jungle, I feel like there are a lot of uh, shots in it that I wonder if they were only included to take advantage of that that beautiful three color Technicolor. Like, mm-hmm. like there are parts where it will just cut away to some kind of tropical bird that is squawking in a tree, and yeah. you know, we see all of its beautiful feathers.
1: Yeah, yeah, sort of. You know, before three D, there was you know, there was Technicolor. Yeah. Again, it's quite, quite a beautiful looking film. So let's talk, uh, let's talk about the, um, the director behind it. Again, Ernest B. Schoedzak, who lived 1893 through 1979. Um, we're, we're not going to really be able to touch on his entire biography here, uh, but if, if you want a good one, uh, you know, you can go to the usual places. I found uh, Britannica had a nice one online, uh, but, but here's some of the, the interesting points sort of the bullet points of his life that I think are worth driving home here. So, first of all, he ran away from home as a teenager and worked as a surveyor in San Francisco. He got a job as a cameraman from help with help from his brother in 1914, and then during uh, the First World War, he served as a cameraman in the Signal Corps in France. Uh, he stayed in Europe after that. He got involved in adventure filmmaking. So this is this is interesting because it. It, it makes sense, given the nature of films like King Kong, but it also, uh, you know, it seems to run, um, you know, against the grain if you think about his success in fiction, because earlier on, it's, it's less purely fictional. There's a certain documentary aspect to it, like fictionalized documentary work. So he, he served with the Red Cross in 1919, helped refugees uh, from the uh, Russo-Polish War, and he, uh, he also filmed this conflict, as well as the Greco-Turkish War of 1921 through 22, And in this, he essentially wound up working as a conflict journalist and was then sponsored by the New York Times as a cameraman on an around the world expedition. Wow. So he worked on this. He worked with a pilot by the name of Marion C. Cooper, and they began producing what they called natural dramas, which were a kind of combination of travelogue and drama. Hmm. Uh, This is super fascinating, uh, given what we've covered on stuff, Stuff to Blow Your Mind before. In 1925, he joined William Beebe's expedition to the Galapagos Islands as a cameraman.
0: Ah, now William Beebe was, if you'll recall, the uh, was he a marine biologist? He was a researcher who mm-hmm. uh, who got down into a basically a gigantic metal ball that just yep. was dangled down deep into the ocean to see what kind of life could be observed through a tiny window in this ball uh, at, at depths that had never before been documented firsthand. Yeah, the bathysphere. Horrifying because this this ball. Had no means of self propulsion. It was not a submersible. It was not a submarine. It was just a hollow metal sphere and dangling by a chain. So if the chain breaks, you just sink to the bottom of the ocean.
1: Yes. But uh, but he was, as we discussed in past episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, he was also notable because he he tended to surround himself uh, not only with technicians on these expeditions, but also artists like people who could write about it, uh, people who could uh, illustrate what was going on. um, And 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 it turns out Shodzak was one of the um, creatives that he brought aboard to document the work, at least on one of the expeditions.
0: Now, I think the bathysphere observations were not in the Galapagos. That was somewhere in the Atlantic. It was off, uh, what, Bermuda or somewhere in the Bahamas?
1: Yeah, I believe so. This would have been a different journey. But still, it's wonderful how these two came together. I wasn't expecting him to come up in this. So anyway, from here, Shodzak and Cooper, uh, they go on to produce a, a natural drama titled Chang, a drama of the wilderness from 20, 1927. This earned a nomination for Best Picture at the very first Academy Awards. He then directed The Four Feathers in 1929, based on the 1902 novel, shot in California and the Sudan. And then he shot Rango in Sumatra, uh, which is a film about, and this just sounds like super uh, 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 ambitious for any filmmaker, because it's about a boy, an orangutan, and a tiger, uh, filmed in 31. again. Uh, then he shot The Most Dangerous Game in 32. Oh, okay. Wait, we didn't we just talk about no we talked about uh ernest dickerson's
0: survive is it surviving the game surviving the game yep the ice tea movie uh which which is sort of a based on the similar concept the the novella or novel uh the most dangerous game which is about a human who hunts men
1: yes and so it's been popular for a while it's one of those those stories that's going to keep getting adapted in one form or the other now, from here, Shotek and Cooper moved on to what would be the, their most famous motion picture that they worked on, and that was King Kong of 1933. And then they followed this up with The Son of Kong, which also came out in 1933. And uh, then they, did, uh, they also did a movie titled Blind Adventure, which also came out in 1933. So it was we got, quite a we year gotta... for these two.
0: Regular Roger Corman over here. This is like Roger Corman's 1957 or whatever year year it was that he made like 14 movies.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, So yeah, an impressive year. They were really just firing on all cylinders. Um, Now in 1935, they made a film titled The Last Days of Pompeii. And this was ultimately, at least commercially, a failed attempt at an historical epic. So after this Uh, You know, they were kind of, I guess, in some version of director's jail. Uh, He ended up doing smaller (laughs) pictures. Uh, But then he got another shot at a big genre film, a special effects feature, and that is 1940s Dr. Cyclops. And Cooper was an uncredited producer on this film. Now, uh, of course, we'll get back to Dr. Cyclops in depth here, but... um, World War II broke out, and uh, Shodzak was uh, was uh, like a lot of people sucked into the war machine anew. And while testing photographic equipment at high altitude for the U.S. Uh, Army Air Corps, he suffered a severe eye injury. Um, I was trying to get a like a firm account of it. If there's if there's a good biography about Shodzak, I wasn't able to find one like a you know a, like a, a, a book length biography. I believe what happened is he accidentally dropped his face mask, and uh, I'm and I'm a little foggy on the exact nature of what the injury was if we're talking about like a, you know some sort of a light blast based uh, injury or if it's pressure based but the end result was severely damaged his eyesight and he only directed a couple of additional films um Really only one notable film after that, and this was Mighty Joe Young in 1949, uh, which featured Oscar-winning special effects by O'Brien and Ray Harryhausen. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. so another big name. Uh, And then he finally directed a portion of This is Cinerama in 1952, uncredited to promote the Cinerama widescreen projection process. But that was pretty much it. Like, after this eye injury, um, you know, he just wasn't... uh, able and or you know or didn't want to direct I think it was you know more about ability and then uh, he died in 1979 uh, Cooper died in 1973 uh, he, he did a bit more work after Mighty uh, Joe Young came out including uh, serving as executive producer on 1956's The Searchers directed by John Ford and starring of course John Wayne this is. A, a fantastic coincidence how
0: the story about his damaged eyesight connects to the plot of Dr. Cyclops. It almost makes me wonder, do you know what exactly the time of his injury was? Could it have been before Dr. Cyclops or was it after?
1: I believe I mean, that's, that's the weird thing about this. Um, I, I've not been able to find like a firm date for this injury, you know, like a statement, you know, in this year or in this month, this is mm-hmm. when Sachs suffered the eye injury. But it's, it's my understanding that that the the eye injury occurred after Dr. Cyclops
0: wow um because so we'll get into this a little bit more when we discuss the plot, but one of the main uh situation points of Dr. Cyclops is that the the titular doctor uh the Dr. Thorkel is a is a brilliant scientist but he's limited by damage to his eyes his, yeah. he's got poor eyesight already and relies on these really thick glasses
1: yeah so this is this is just mysterious to me like it, it's either an amazing coincidence, or I have it wrong, and there is more connective tissue here. Like, you know, maybe he had, you know, previously damaged his eyes in some fashion, or his eyesight was already fading. I'm not sure, you know, what the answer is here. Mm -hmm. Um, But as it turns out, like his actual biography and and some of the plot elements in uh, Dr. Cyclops do line up. Now, he did not write Dr. Cyclops, though, Correct. Right. Dr. Cyclops was written by um, a writer by the name of Tom Kilpatrick, uh, who lived 1898 through 1962. And uh, you can look him up on IMDb. But basically, he wrote various crime and Western screenplays and teleplays, but nothing that really jumped out to me personally.
0: I mean, the script here is... Not really anything to write home about, except in the skillful way that it string that it efficiently strings together excellent special effects set pieces. But you're not going to like run into uh, interesting character development or like super witty dialogue in this movie. This right. this is a very much a sets and special effects driven film. But I will give the script credit for connecting each one of those things to the next in a very fast paced and, and enjoyable way. Yeah. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, let's talk about Dr. Thorkell. Uh, In this film, he is played by an actor by the name of Albert Decker, who lived 1905 through 1968. Uh, He was a Broadway star turned film actor. And later in his life, he served on the California State Legislature and uh, largely transitioned back to stage in his later career. Uh, He often played aggressive characters. And this is probably due to his his great size. So he was he was 6'2", which granted isn't like, Super tall, but it's that's I mean it's reasonably tall. I'm I'm six two or so, and I bump my head way too often. Uh, he but, seems
0: big in this movie.
1: Yeah, and I think part of that too is that not only is he six two, but he's he's got kind of a, a thick physique, like not um, you know not obese or anything, but like he's he look he has this kind of he looks kind of beefy, especially for a, a mad scientist in a movie. Usually they're a bit um, uh, scrawnier, and uh, mm-hmm. like Doctor Thorkel looks like he could really throw down. You would not want to tangle with Thorkell. Right. Um, so, yeah, Ted, this guy, Albert Decker, played him. Notable roles uh, for him include uh, roles in Kiss Me Deadly and East of Eden, which was uh, 55, I believe, uh, as well as his, his last film role, which was in 1969's The Wild Bunch.
0: Uh, yeah, the uh, hyper-violent Sam Peckinpah movie in which I think he plays uh, he plays some kind of like railroad policeman or like a ra- railway detective. Mm-hmm. He's so, hunting the outlaws in the movie, if I recall.
1: Ah, that's it's one that I have... Um somehow i i managed to to get through my 20s and 30s without seeing the wild it's, bunch
0: it is a dusty dirty nasty violent movie it makes you need a bath <laughs> uh, in fact i would say the the full vibe of that movie is is summed up in one exchange uh, the outlaws arrive at the at the compound of uh, of this powerful guy and and the guy says to them like you're filthy you need baths and one of the outlaws says we don't want baths we want women
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> It sounds delightful. That is, that is um, one sentence that that communicates a lot. <laughs> All right. Well, um, in this film, uh, yeah, like like we've said, he's he's delightful. He's got this wonderful imposing physical presence. He's got these uh, you know these scheming eyes that are accentuated by his uh, his his glasses, bald head. Uh, an evil mustache. Um, And I I have to say, he he was reminding me of somebody as I was watching this and I figured out who it is. It's British actor, uh, Julian Barrett, uh, who mighty Boosh fans out there, you might recognize him as the actor who played uh, Howard moon. Uh, But he also showed up on, on dark place with Garth Marenghi as a priest. Okay. And uh, he also was in something recently. He was the, he was the, the titular character in Mindhorn, uh, which I've he- heard good things about. I never caught him in Dark Place, but
0: uh, I should go back and watch that whole series again. You oh, do yeah. it In one sitting.
1: It's, uh, ironically, it is uh, the, the ape-heavy episode, I believe. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh so anyway uh yeah Howard Moon or Julian Barrett uh same height as uh as Albert Decker and I feel like Dr Thorkel could have easily been a, a Julian Barrett character. Uh I included uh, photos here if you can compare the two. Like they they just they have very similar physicality, facial features. Uh both are prone to to uh, wearing a mustache, so uh I include that for what it's worth.
0: Yes, I can see and and like D- Dr Thorkel he's going to hurt you real bad. <laughs>
1: All right. So there are other humans in this film, and we'll, we'll touch on them uh, with, with, in less detail because there's not much else for non-Dr. Thorkell characters to do in this film.
0: I mean, I would say they execute their functions correctly, which is to move the plot from one fantastic set and and, and prop uh, sort of extravaganza to another.
1: Yes. And do so, uh, you know, with, with, with a serious look on their face. Yeah. Um, so the first one to mention here is Thomas Coley, who plays Bill Stockton. He lived 1913 through 1989. Uh, this was his very first film role followed by mostly a lot of TV work. Uh, his partner was actor and writer William um, Rorick, and Rorick was a theater actor on Broadway who was also in Not of This Earth.
0: Oh! Wow! So that was the 1957 Roger Corman movie that we have covered on a previous episode of uh, of Weird House Cinema. It was, I believe, the, the B-side to Attack of the Crab Monsters. So if in 57 you went out to a drive-in theater to, uh, to watch a sci-fi double feature you may well have seen attack of the crab monsters and then not of this earth with this guy uh what what was his name again william Uh, rorick yeah william rorick he was the doctor in the movie i think uh not to be mean i i think we did not uh draw a lot of attention to his performance in the movie because there's not much to say about it except his character uh if you recall he played dr rochelle who was the the blood clinic doctor who gets hypnotized by the alien so that he's unable to talk about the alien's blood condition Mm -hmm. uh so so other characters would you know they'd be sitting at a at a table in a restaurant and the other characters would be like don't you think it's strange that that man had alien blood and dr rochelle would be like oh you guys want to get some appetizers
1: (laughs) yeah yeah so it wasn't the most memorable of roles uh but um but uh, Rorick was was in a number of interesting films, uh, several of which I, I've seen. He was in God Told Me To. Uh, this was the uh, with the Larry Cohen film uh, about uh, alien messiahs. Uh, he was in Day of the Dolphin. He was in The Wasp Woman. And he was a friend. This is interesting. Biographically, he was a friend of author E.M. Forrester. And uh, Coley and Rorick, uh, apparently, uh, they, call it, they would uh, like you know entertain him when he was in town, that sort of thing. They'd go out and see shows and stuff. Um, but uh, but yeah, that, that's the connect. They're all connected here to Coley. Coley is the one in this film, not Rorick. And uh, uh, but the two of them apparently collaborated on various projects over the course of their careers and lives together.
0: Coley plays the, 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 like, sort of lead love interest in the movie. He's the only character who's hunky enough to potentially <laughs> uh, end up falling in love with the one female character. So y- you kind of know what's going to happen.
1: Yeah, it's a very G. Golly um, role. And again, this was uh-huh. his first screen role to boot. So the results are very wooden. Uh, there's, there's just not much to this part here. But that still it seems like he had an interesting life and career. All right, let's talk about the the what the sole female character in this film. Uh, the character is Dr. Mary Robinson. The actor is Janice Logan. She was born in 1915, died in 1965. She only appeared in six films, and this was her third but here is, again, a nice connection to um, the previous episode of Weird House Cinema. Her last two film roles were both Mexican films directed by Rene Cardona, ah, uh, the director of uh, Santo and the Treasure of Dracula. Exactly. Yes. Uh, you know, a, a major name in uh, Mexican uh, cinema. Uh, so both were, of these films were from 1944. Uh, one the translated name is The Black Ace and the other is Summer Hotel. And uh, I was looking this up. Uh, The the Black Ace also featured a a Dutch occultist and magician named David Tobias Bamberg, who billed himself as Fu Manchu. And Bamberg also (laughs) co-wrote it. But uh, yeah, which I don't know, it it sounds like he was sort of an an occult uh, star or would-be star of the day. And so he just, I guess he wound up in Mexico City and was like, hey, let's do a movie. Hmm. Uh, anyway, Logan is also rather wooden in this role, uh, and but it's not like the film gives her much to do other than scurry around and try not to be grabbed by giant hands or eaten by giant cats. Then we have uh, the character of Dr. Bullfinch, played by Charles Halton, who lived 1876 through 1959, actor of stage and film. Uh, I would say he has a little more to do in this. He's actually pretty funny because he's this stuck-up professor through and through, even after he's been reduced to a tiny human wearing a handkerchief toga.
0: Yeah, he refuses a lot of things in the movie. Like he's constantly being told to do things
1: and saying like, "I refuse." Yes, on scientific grounds, Dr. Thorkell. I I I absolutely, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> Uh, let's see. Then we have um, the character of Steve uh, uh, Baker, played by Victor Killian, who lived 1891 through 1979. He was in films like Only Angels Have Wings and The Oxbow Incident. Uh, he wound up blacklisted from Hollywood, presumably for uh, political beliefs, uh, but he did, ended up doing a lot of TV and stage work instead after that. And. I mean, he's all right in this. He's also your very... It's a very typical type of performance and role for this time period.
0: He's the mule guy. He's uh, hes all about the mules.
1: Yeah. All right. Next, we have uh, an actor by the name of Frank uh, Iaconelli, who plays the character Pedro. Um, so... This guy lived 1898 through 1965. He was an Italian-born World War I vet who became a naturalized U.S. citizen. And he was a vaudeville performer, later a USO tour manager. He he played a lot of Italian characters, as one might admit, but he also, expect rather, but he also uh, seemed to have a lot of roles in films playing stereotypical Mexican characters. And in this film, he plays Pedro, which is very much a goofy stereotype character.
0: Yeah, they don't say what nationality Pedro is supposed to be, but he is playing a, a Latin American character, Pedro, who at least definitely in the first half of the movie, movie is uh the butt of some jokes. Yeah. About so, like trying to find his lost horse, which has actually been shrunken with a shrink ray.
1: Yeah. So, you know, um this was a you know a, a casting situation that definitely um made me sigh a bit. Uh, but uh if you wanna know more about the uh, Iaconelli, I, I did find a page on uh, bwesterns.com um, like dot westernscom that that has like seems to be the, the the only place I could find online like you can only find much of a biography of him on imdb but this site gets a little more into like what his what kind of vaudeville acts he was involved in and he, he did seem to kind of make a career in places out of out of playing a mexican stereotype and, and certainly that's what more or less he's doing in this film now, another interesting character uh, that is involved in this film, uh, ultimately uncredited, but there's a, a guy by the name of Charles Gamora, who uh, lived 1903 through 1961, and he's an uncredited makeup artist on this film. Uh, were you familiar with this, uh, this guy before, Joe? Well, I guess by his work, but not by name. Okay so he was born in the Philippines he was a Hollywood makeup artist who became known as the king of the gorilla men <laughs> um and it's interesting how this came to be. like apparently he's a guy who would um he would hang around outside the studio and he would um he would offer to paint for you or draw for you like he had uh sort of an innate and I'm I'm guessing kind of like self-taught artistic ability and of course people eventually notice this and they're like oh bring this guy in we got some stuff to paint let's get him going and uh and I guess he was up for anything and and at one point in one of these films they busted out a gorilla suit and he's like hey that should be me I'm the right, uh, just the right height. I've got the physicality to to carry this heavy suit. Let me get in there. And so that's what he did. Uh, And aside to doing a lot of, he did a lot of monster makeup in other films, but he has, and he has 60 makeup credits on IMDb, but he also has 60 acting credits, most of which are playing gorillas, wearing gorilla (laughs) costumes. And if you, so if, I do recommend looking him up because it's kind of amazing. Like if there was yeah. a, a gorilla costume in a film, this was often the guy that was wearing it. Uh, in addition to some, you know, aliens here and there, he definitely did some alien costumes and other kind of like humanoid monster costumes. But his specialty was the gorilla costume.
0: Oh, and I see. What do you know? He's in at least one adaptation of the Murders in the Rue Morgue.
1: Yeah. Uh, in addition, in addition to being an actor and an artist, he was also an inventor and he held, actually held a couple of patents, including a, I would look these up on, on Google Scholar, uh, a sanitary pad holder and a tissue dispenser. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, interesting fella. Now, uh, again, he was just a, you know, makeup guy in this. The, the two main special effects names were, um, uh, Farcio Edward and Gordon Jennings, Uh, These were the two that were nominated for an Oscar for the special effects in this film for the 13th Academy Awards now they ultimately lost to the thief of Baghdad uh, but uh, but these are some impressive special effects like we said Um, they're impressive for their time it's not the first time that we see miniaturized humans or giant animals in a film. Certainly, Todd Browning's 1936 film, The Devil Doll, uh, predates it. Uh, But this film makes some impressive use of supersized sets, giant hands, creative combinations of footage. Yeah, the the special effects in this film
0: are really top notch. I I was trying to think of earlier examples of really good looking special effects for miniaturized humans. And I recalled the main example I could think of are the excellent shrunken human effects in Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, yes. By James Whale, uh, which was released in 1935. Now, you might remember in that movie when we first meet, uh, you could argue, the villain of the film, Dr. Mm -hmm. Septimus Pretorius, also just one of my favorite mad scientists in movies. uh, Dr. Thorkell... And Dr. Septimus Pretorius, they're really up there in the canons of mad science in the first few
1: decades of of
0: uh, studio motion pictures.
1: I and, love Dr. Pretorius because yeah. in, uh, in in the Frankenstein uh, film, Bride of Frankenstein, he's, he's such a mad science enabler, you know? Yes. Frankenstein is like, oh, I can't do it anymore. I'm emotionally wrought from that last film. And he's like, no, no, we've got do to get it. you back in there. We've got to yeah. get you back in there. You can do it. Let's do some <laughs> evil.
0: There's also a great part in Right, at Frankenstein, where we see Dr. Pretorius just going down into a crypt just mm-hmm. to have like a midnight snack. Like he goes <laughs> down into a crypt at night for a picnic. He lays out a spread with like food and wine and stuff on a big tombstone. It's wonderful. Oh,
1: man. Uh, I forgot about that part. but uh, Yeah.
0: But I think it's, like, right when we first meet Dr. Pretorius in the movie. I think – what is it? uh, Who is it who's playing Dr. Frankenstein in the movie? Is it Colin Clive? Yes, it's Colin Clive. Yeah, Yeah, so he's meeting with Colin Clive, and uh, he's, like, showing off his latest work, which are these jars of homemade homunculi. So he's got, like, tiny humans in jars, and I think he has, like, a tiny king in one glass vial and a tiny queen in another – I don't really recall the special effect relating to the plot much. Maybe I'm forgetting how it connects,
1: but uh it no, it, it really... doesn't really. It's just like, look at what I can do. Yeah, Um, I'm pretty great. You're you're great. Let's work together and you will do great mad sciencey
0: things. Well, yeah, it seems like one of those things that I I suspect often happened in early special effects driven uh, movies like this, which is that somebody had figured out how to do a certain kind of effect in a way that looked good. So you just find a way to work it into the movie. It's like, well, Mm -hmm. we can do it. Why not do it? So let's get a homunculus in this movie.
1: yeah. (laughs)
0: And uh, I didn't look deep into it, but as a side note, I think those homunculus effects in in Bride of Frankenstein were done by John Fulton and David Horsley, uh, and that was by it was done by like uh, combining different different shots. So you'd have a you know a shot of people inside full size glass jars with a certain kind of background, and then that was matted over the the full shot you know at normal distance with uh, with the the actors looking huge in comparison.
1: All right, well, let's get into the plot
0: of Dr. Cyclops. Okay, here's the full plot breakdown. Uh, You know, we always have to comment on the opening credits, and this movie also has excellent opening credits, like a lot of the weird older movies we have watched. I, I feel like... Uh, opening credits used to be really cool for for weird sci-fi movies and then they they got kind of eh, whatever you know, it would just be some some like words on a starfield background for a few decades. and then they just started doing away with opening credits
1: altogether. Yeah. But for for a while, certainly in this age, it feels like the opening credits were treated like the poster, you know, as if you might be walking by the uh, projection screen and deciding whether you're going to stop and finish watching. I mean, that's the ultimate weird. I guess you get in the audience revved up, but it's like they've already paid their money. They're already in the seat. They're they're clearly they're not going to walk out yet. Uh, But I, I guess it's about just preparing them for what's to come. Well, there's actually a kind of visual continuity from the opening
0: credits to the opening scene in this movie because you've got – while the credits are rolling, there is this flickering light effect that creates a kind of auroral unease that is then replicated again once you get to the opening scene. It's like the same uh, shimmering, flickering light effect carries over – into the scene of a bald man in welding goggles who is leaning over a table examining a fluorescent green tube in a room lit by the shimmering green light and of course this is dr thorkell Mm. and the movie gets right to it because his his colleague mendoza enters the room and of course i i my brain every time somebody said mendoza my brain kept going to the simpsons um (laughs) But uh, his colleague Mendoza enters the room and he says to Dr. Thorkel, how much longer will you struggle before you realize you can't do it? And Thorkel says, no longer, my dear Mendoza, because I have done it. Look for yourself. Uh, so, you know, they examine what it is that Thorkel has been looking at. And Mendoza is aghast. He is shaken. Uh, Thorkell says, there should be sufficient radium to tear it to shreds. And yet it's still alive. And we don't know what they're talking about, but Mendoza is horrified. He's he's terrified of the power of whatever they've discovered, and he says he starts saying like, "You must destroy your slides. You must burn your notes." And then we get uh, some some classic backstory through utterly implausible dialogue, you know, when somebody says something to another character that that person would have no occasion to say to them, uh, just (laughs) obviously for the benefit of the audience. So Mendoza says, when I discovered this gigantic radium deposit, I first thought of you, Dr. Thorkell, my teacher of Dr. Thorkell, the great biologist. I sent for you to counsel me. I began to imagine here in the jungle, the Thorkell Institute, a palace of healing to which all my Come, and it was very much like Grandpa Seth has been dead for three weeks now, and it's
1: been hard on all of us, including me, his daughter. That is correct, Joe, my podcast partner, who has podcasted with me for many years at this point.
0: But Thorkel is immediately dismissive of Mendoza's concerns. He's like, you know, bah, we, we now have the very cosmic force of creation itself. We can shape life like clay. And then Mendoza, again, with the classic sci-fi movie line, he says, you are tampering with powers reserved to God, which is almost verbatim. The last line of Bride of the Monster by Ed Wood. You remember mm. that part?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so.
0: The movie with uh, Bella Lugosi and Tor Johnson and uh and at the end of the movie Bella's mansion explodes. I don't remember why. Like there's a giant octopus attack yep. and the mansion explodes and then a, a guy just kind of soberly looks at the camera and says he tampered in God's domain. <laughs>
1: So Mendoza's like, we shouldn't tamper in God's domain. But Dr. Thorkel is like, yeah, that's what we're doing, and we, yes. we're going to do it.
0: He literally says uh, – he says like, uh, you're tampering with powers reserved to God, and Thorkel says, that is good. That is just what I am doing. <laughs> and so Mendoza tries to forbid it, but Thorkel, he's tasted the God power now, and there's no going back. So it is time to murder And the Mendoza murder is a very cool scene, I thought. Thorkell shoves Mendoza's head through this radioactive green tube he's been looking at. And then there's a photographic effect where Mendoza's face is just gradually layered over by skull paint. I like that.
1: It's it's a it's a weird scene. Apparently, this one was removed from some TV airings of the film. Uh, so I don't know if they found it like maybe it was for time or it was just like, considered too graphic. There is a like a severity to it. Like it it firmly establishes Doctor Thorkell as a guy. Who will murder for, you know, for for his science and will really not think twice about it? it's not like there was a struggle or some sort of accident. It wasn't one of those situations where, oh, I've stumbled into murder. And now this is who I am. He's like, got to kill you now. And he does it right.
0: So next we cut to some guys in a fancy study, and it's, it's a room that sort of reminds me of M's office in the Sean Connery, James Bond movies. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, weirdly, despite what you might assume about the sort of pipe tobacco drabness of such an environment – The first thing I couldn't ignore was how much the colors drip Uh, just in this scene in a study, because the opening scene is very much shimmering green and black. It's actually sort of closer to the look of the two color technicolor range in Dr. X, which we watched for a previous episode. Remember how that whole movie was very had a kind of diseased green and orange palette without the the full range of of full color technicolor. This has all the colors now, now that we're Mm -hmm. in the office. And the the greens, the reds, blue and orange, the color is almost violent and it it is really beautiful. It pops but anyway so we're in the study now and these uh, two two stuffy old guys are uh, discussing attempts by Thorkell to recruit them by mail for research at his remote institute in the Amazon I think it's supposed to be in Peru and this is Dr. Bullfinch we're meeting he's one of these two guys here and they're discussing the pros and cons of joining Dr. Thorkell's jungle institute pros are that he is the greatest living biologist so Mm -hmm. be good to work with him cons are he's a strange man secret about his experiments, uh, you, you already get the impression that these guys suspect he may kill them. <laughs> uh, and I, I love the strong vibe from the very beginning that this is going to be like the fire festival of scientific research. It's just like lure everybody to a remote location and then just watch it all go to hell.
1: Yeah, yeah, like it's it's pretty obvious where this is at least in general where this is going. Like. Mad Scientist is up to bad stuff in the middle of nowhere where where there is no law but his own. Let's go. Let's go hang out with him and see what happens.
0: Yeah. And then there's a sort of recruiting montage. These these scenes are they're brief. There's not much to them.
1: Yeah. Uh, It's kind of like, hey, if you paid your hotel bill. Uh no. Well, right. better join up with us then.
0: <laughs> right, so we get Dr. Bullfinch and then we get Dr. Mary Robinson who's writing a letter saying she's joining the team. Uh, I think <laughs> so the letter. <laughs> yeah. I think the letter says something like uh should should be no problem or something. <laughs> Um, And then we see the recruitment of a good-for-nothing deadbeat geologist named Dr. Uh, Bill Stockton. This is the guy played by Thomas Coley. And he has pulled in on the promise of having his mini IOUs remitted. Uh, So when we meet him, he's lounging in a patio recliner. And I don't know if you noticed this. Did, Did you notice that there are just, in at least one of these shots, there are bugs crawling all over his lap?
1: No, I did not notice that.
0: I mean, it's easy to miss. It goes by pretty quick. And I don't think it's supposed to be like that. I think it's just something that happened to get caught by the camera. But in one of the shots, there are at least three flies simultaneously. A couple are on his belt buckle. One's kind of to the side of his crotch. It, and it makes me wonder, like, what, did he spill sugar water on his lap or something
1: in an earlier take? Um, I don't know. I mean, is he shirtless in this scene? No, 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 no. Okay. He's got a shirt on. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was thinking maybe they oiled him up a bit, you know? Uh, okay. But who knows, huh?
0: Uh, but yeah, so they're recruiting him because I don't. I think there was supposed to be another mineralogist or geologist, and that person fell through. So now they're trying to get the deadbeat guy. But he's a handsome deadbeat. And then finally, they're out in the field in Peru, and Bullfinch, Robinson, and Stockton recruit a uh, miner mule wrangler named Steve, who has a lot of mule thoughts, and he wants to get rich. And there's a mule haggling scene between Bullfinch and Steve, which is pretty funny. Steve's like, you can't have the mules. I need them for something. And, and then all these eggheads are like, but Dr. Thorkel is the greatest living authority on organic molecular structure. And the mule man is not very impressed. But eventually they get him to go along by promising him riches and uh, saying that he can come with them to, uh, to, I guess, make sure the mules are OK.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense. But OK, he's coming along
0: right so they journey through the jungle they arrive at dr. Thorkel's compound uh, Thorkel's assistant Pedro comes to inform him that they've arrived and when Thorkel is interrupted I, I just want to say he's wearing an awesome helmet slash suit uh, Rob I attached a picture I found of the helmet for you to look at here it is it, it's just like it's just like a can just like a straight-up thick can with two eye holes that surrounded by glass and then a kind of rounded top it's not very elaborate but it looks great
1: yeah it looks kind of i mean it reminds me a lot of some of the stock rocket men and robot costumes of the of the day Mm -hmm. um you know it looks a little bit like a medieval knight as well
0: oh it's kind of the knight guarding the bridge in monty python and the holy grail Mm -hmm, yep and so they get there, and they all meet Dr. Thorkell, and Dr. Thorkell is a creep from the first minute. They d- they do not, like, ease into it. He's got the unholy combo of a huge head with tiny glasses, and he's he's huge in general, but it's just this, like, large, bulky, bald man grabbing people by the arm and moving them around uh, and saying, like, I'm so glad you've come. He might as well be saying, you know, what? what lovely cells you're made out of. <laughs> And so we find out that Dr. Thorkell sent for the assistance of the other scientists because of damage to his eyes. The damage to his eyes no longer allows him to use the microscope. But I was wondering, wait a minute, then if that's the only problem, why did he send for three different scientists then? It almost seems like the implication is that Dr. Thorkell thinks that if he had fully functioning eyes, he would be worth four scientists put together.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. Um or you know, or maybe it's it's it, he doesn't expect uh, all of them to live that long. You know, right. uh, he needs multiple sets of spare eyes.
0: Well, this is weird because so here's a question I have. He is a creep from the beginning, but the movie does not suggest that he planned to kill them all along. Like mm-hmm. the fact that he kills them does genuinely seem to be an unexpected development for him. He kills them uh, because they discover his secrets, basically.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, I guess he what he I think it's revealed that he he sort of needed a a a mineralist, uh, a mineral specialist uh, Mm -hmm. to uh, to weigh in on some of uh, his work. He needed somebody with a biology background. But uh, I don't know about the professor. Did he I mean, just sort of brought him in to to boast to him about like I, maybe part of it is like ultimately he needs an audience like he's, am- yes. he's doing amazing things. So, yes, I need I need a basically a, a team of judges to come here and tell me how great I am.
0: I think we're sort of rewriting the script as we go, but th- that's – I think you're onto something there. Th- that is part of it. Like he – as a megalomaniac, he needs people to witness his greatness.
1: Yeah. So that, that's one of the downsides to, to working out in the, the jungle is that uh, – in the jungle is you occasionally have to bring people in to uh, recognize your greatness right and so they're
0: there and they recognize his greatness but he wants them to get right to work so he has them look at some stuff in a microscope and Stockton the the deadbeat hunk he sees some iron crystals under the microscope this is like minutes after they've arrived and he says yes it's iron crystals in the microscope and Dr. Thorkell is like ah Eureka okay that's it well I'm done with you guys now and and Bullfinch which is funny I mean very funny and Bullfinch is mad he immediately gets super indignant and starts yelling he's like you can't do this to us um, he, oh, at one point, Bullfinch is like, "Are you are you intimating that you brought us here just for five minutes of work?" And Thorkel is like, "I am not intimating. I am merely stating a fact." <laughs> <laughs> Which that's man, that's one of my favorite types of statements in English. The the like, I'm merely stating a fact. Like that wasn't a threat. It was a promise. You know, <laughs> I'm not suggesting anything. I'm merely stating a fact. I wonder when was the first instance of that.
1: I don't know. Uh, but, but yeah, this seems like a, at least a, an early variation on the theme.
0: But anyway, Bullfinch and Robinson, they are mad and they want to know what it is that, that Thork is working on before they leave. Steve, the, the mule guy, he thinks he knows. He thinks the answer is that there is a mine full of precious ore somewhere around here. Uh, Stockton doesn't seem to care much. It seems like he's fine to just like get his bill settled and then leave. He, all, you know, All he wants to do is lay around in a chair,
1: basically. Yeah. But the other two, it is kind of like they thought they thought this was going to be Thorkel at all. Uh, yes. You know, they thought they, they were, were going to get co-author
0: credit. Yes, exactly.
1: But yeah. no, there's only one author on Thorkell uh, research, and that's Dr. Thorkell.
0: Now, you might know more about this than me. I was kind of curious about this movie's abundance of unflattering pants. There (laughs) are multiple characters wearing pants that have like big, saggy butt and thigh areas that sometimes make it look like they're wearing like a weird sort of diaper or just sort of just have a saggy butt in the pants. Are these some specific kind of rugged outdoor pants of the era, like the go into the jungle pants? Uh, I, I didn't know what the deal with this was.
1: I don't know. Uh, I, just, I just thought maybe that was the style of the day. You know, you just wore big balloony pants, but uh, I could be wrong. Maybe, maybe uh, the pants experts out there can weigh in. Well anyway,
0: Steve, the mule guy goes out snooping at night uh, the, the day before Thorkel has told them they're supposed to leave. Thorkel says you need to leave tomorrow and so it's that night and, and Steve goes out snooping around I think he wants to track down the mine so uh, while Thorkel is inside wearing his crazy helmet and doing science work, uh, uh, Steve is snooping around this big hole in the ground that has a giant like uh, rigging over it and with some kind of rope dangling something down in the hole and then he's almost caught by Thorkel. Thorkell comes out and Baker hides and it it is revealed that Thorkell is operating some kind of awesome giant copper drill in the Thorkell super deep borehole. He's like drilling down into the earth and getting something out of the earth. I I don't know. Uh, I think maybe it's the radium samples.
1: Yeah, there's this, they they don't talk about it uh, that much, but there's this sense that he's somehow absorbing radiation out of the, the ground itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, by by lowering this probe down into it, um, it's that's kind of the sense I was getting from it.
0: Yeah. And then we see at some point Thorkel is alone in his lab later, and it reveals that he has created a tiny pony. This is very much like the Septimus Pretorius uh, images. So we, there is somehow they've superimposed footage of a full sized pony uh, kind of neighing and and clomping around, but they have matted that onto the shot of Thorkel sitting at a table, and so it looks like the pony is on the table, and it looks great. Yeah. Uh, but then later we check in. I guess this is the next morning. Bullfinch is examining some pig remains that he came across, and it claim uh, he claims that he's discovered a new species of pig that is only four inches long at maturity, and Bullfinch tries to name the species after himself, <laughs> like you do. <laughs> <laughs> and um and then Thorkell rolls up on them and, and he's immediately like, haha you weak minded fool. You think you've <laughs> discovered a new pig? Uh, and he said, this, I wrote down this quote, strange how absorbed man has always been in the size of things.
1: <laughs> uh, yes, because, of course, he knows what this is. This is not a new species of pig. This is just a normal pig that he shrank down.
0: He's been shrinking pigs for months, and they're all here amazed, thinking they've discovered new species of pigs. And he's like, ha ha, you idiots. You don't understand pig shrinking. I'll tell you about pig shrinking. (laughs) Uh, But Bullfinch retorts. He says that size is the chief difference between mammals. I wrote down this quote as well. He says, in all essentials, a mouse and a whale are identical. Uh, Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So Bullfinch, I guess he's supposed to be like the second best biologist in the world, but <laughs> I'm not sure about that there, one.
1: There was a big gap between first and second greatest biologists of the time, I guess. Um, yeah, like, no, I don't think there were. I think great biologists in real life before these guys would uh, have have argued. No, a mouse is and a whale are not essentially the same creature. Uh, there is there are some some major differences. Uh, but after this, I like this Thorkel.
0: Like we said, even though he is very much a creep from the beginning he does seem to give them another chance. He tries to send them away again. He's like, be on your way. But bullfinch is just so mad. He refuses to leave until he finds out what's going on. And then Thorkell begins to, to threaten them. He's like, if you do not leave within the hour, you will remain at your own peril. Um, so, there, there's some snooping around after this. Thorkel goes back, I guess, assuming that they're supposed, they're gonna leave, but they end up investigating. They're too curious for their own good. Uh, they hear some horse sounds, and they end up spying on Thorkel appearing to, like, search around for a horse in tall grass. So mm-hmm. they all start to think, okay, Thorkel has gone mad. But Pedro explains that actually he has delivered a bunch of animals to Thorkell, and he doesn't know where they are now. He's delivered rats and chickens and dogs and cats, and he doesn't know where they are now except for uh, there's this cat, Satanus. Mm -hmm. And, oh, my God, Satanus Satanus is is a good cat.
1: Yeah, uh, upon just mere introduction of Satanus by Dr. Thorkel, I, I instantly laugh, in part because just seeing a cat just sitting there looking slightly bored in a film is, is always at a light, mm-hmm. uh, but also because it, it, does, it doesn't take, take much to realize where this is going. You know, uh, that cat is going to try and eat a tiny person at some point in this film.
0: Oh, yeah. Which is a brilliant idea for for a horror movie, by the way. I mean, a a cat of sufficient size to attack you is a terrifying proposition.
1: Oh, yeah. Like um, anybody who owns a cat can can attest to this because, you know, sometimes they will they will hunt the feet of full sized adults uh, like me. Uh, and their their speed, their reflexes uh, are terrifying, uh, despite how much time they spend, you know, laying around doing nothing and sleeping. Uh, when they want to move, uh, they can do so with just incredible speed. So it's easy to imagine yourself as uh, a small creature and having to face, uh, you know, the, the, the ferocity of a domestic cat. Um, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't stand a chance. Your Your only chance really would be that it would grow bored and torturing you to death. Yeah. I mean, I would
0: say seek out water because you know a lot of a lot of domestic cats don't don't really like getting too wet uh, mm-hmm. uh, i mean I guess there's some exceptions, but you know they, they can be scared about getting too close to water, but then again, if you're very small, I guess water would probably like a shrunken human. Might very well be in extreme danger from water. Uh, we can talk about this more as we go on, but I recall again the JBS Haldane essay, uh, you know, on on being the right size, where he talks about uh, how getting wet is an entirely different proposition for a small animal than it is for a larger animal. Because, like, if a, if a rat gets wet, like a huge percent of its body weight is now clinging to the outside of it. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, th- so there's this question: like, where did all the animals? go you know all the animals that pedro delivered and uh where are they now pedro says i don't know but satanus every day she gets
1: more fat she is really living her best life here <laughs> she's yeah. getting to 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 kill to hunt and kill so many animals that she wouldn't get to otherwise shrunken pigs shrunken horses mm-hmm. it's all gravy for satanus yeah
0: Uh, But anyway, so they're packing up to actually leave this time, I think. Um, But then they discover that they keep finding reasons to stay. Uh, They discovered that the ore that they've been finding around this place contains radium, which at this time they're like, whoa, that's worth a lot of money. And it's very important for scientific research. I guess this would have been on the cusp of the era of the discovery of of, uh, nuclear power.
1: Yeah. So certainly, you know, the the scientists are like, this is great for science. And then uh, mule guy is like, like, there's there's uh, that's some expensive radium. I want a piece of it.
0: Yes. Get me the money. And so they start snooping around in Thorkell stuff. And then there's a big confrontation. Uh, they they find records of him saying that he has shrunk things, and they're like, "Well, he's obviously lost his mind." And uh, they, they and then he comes in and discovers them going through his stuff. Uh, that they, they have a confrontation, and he's like, "Here, well, let me explain everything to you. Come into this room and look at my condenser." And so they all go in there. Uh, Robinson, Bullfinch, Steve uh stockton and pedro yeah at at
1: last he's like pedro get in here this room yeah yeah, (laughs) everybody everybody cram into this
0: into this room don't be suspicious uh just look at the condenser and then he slams the door on them and shrinks them and now we've reached the situation of the film everybody except thorkel has been shrunk to about 13 inches tall And so after this, uh, the, you know, they're trapped in a room having been shrunk and Thorkel is like doing some playful diagnostics saying like, wow, you know, oh, your, your, your vocal cords still work. And oh, you're, you're of this size. And he's crowing over his victory over them, uh, while the rest of the main characters scamper around on the floor trying to hide and escape. And here's where the, the special effects just get wonderful because a lot of what you have here are, um, fully built sets to make actors at normal size appear to be like, you know, somewhere between like six and 13 inches tall uh, according to perspective. So they're like giant chairs and they'll go up to one of the legs of the chair and crouch behind it and giant books and things like that.
1: Yeah. I, I love it when films would do this and I guess they still do variations on this, but uh, I, I, I talked to a guy once in real life and, um, who uh, had previously worked in special effects, and he had worked on the film Stephen King's Cat's Eye, which you mm-hmm. might remember doesn't have any miniaturization occurring, but it does have a troll creature, which was of course played by uh, like an adult in a full size costume. And in order to make him seem like a tiny creature, they had to build like an enormous um, child's bed for this actor to uh prance around on uh so i got to see some behind the scenes photos of that he had it in an album and it was super cool i love it i love it
0: I, I really really miss the
1: era of
0: uh special effects through built sets and built environments i i, I do feel like something really is lost no, no matter how good an animated environment can look i
1: mean the, the green screen world i do feel like has lost something beautiful hmm. Yeah, there's a craftsmanship to it. I mean, not to say there's not a craftsmanship in creating virtual environments, but um, uh, there's a, you know, a physical craft to it that uh, perhaps is, is kind of lost. You know,
0: one thing I noticed at the very beginning is that uh, as soon as we come on the new characters, I guess they are too small for their original clothes now. So instead, the characters have all replaced their original clothes with like togas. They're like uh, little torn pieces of cloth that they're wearing like, uh, like, like togas and stuff. And this really, I think, heightens the connection
1: to the Odyssey that's right and, and of course this the film will continue to it will let you know that it is referencing the odyssey uh, right. it's going to be very direct about it uh but yeah this may be the first uh, sign that they're going in that direction uh so yeah i love this because they their clothes were not shrunk uh right. dr Thorkel is picking up their clothes and putting them in a bag later but i guess he left either pristine handkerchiefs in there and some uh, sewing equipment for, uh, at scale for them, or he had pre-arranged clothing made from handkerchiefs for them, uh, one or the other, because they seemed to fit rather well.
0: Yeah. And so Thorkell says that, you know, he's like, well, I've been working for days without rest, and now I'm going to fall asleep. So he falls asleep. And while he's asleep, they escape the room by building a tower out of books and using a matchstick to draw back the bolt on the door. And then there's a there's a great moment I loved where they're trying to sneak around outside once they, they've they gotten out. And there are some chickens, just like yep. giant chickens and giant chickens. Hey, that would be really scary. I mean, that's like a dinosaur.
1: Yeah, I, I, I would, I would be terrified. Yes, yeah, so like a, like a big feathered T Rex, and, yeah. you know, I guess with any of these animals, you have to ask yourself what is the threshold of, of miniaturization at which I am identified as potential prey by this animal, right? You know? uh, and the chickens never
0: try to eat them, but the implication is there. I mean, I really, do. yeah. So if you were 13 inches tall and you were walking past a chicken, I mean, that'd probably be like a. Uh, A human walking past a a Deinonychus or something, like Theropod Dinosaur, the predatory one.
1: Yeah, if it decided you were worth a peck, I mean, that that would be death. But they do a thing that really did make me laugh. They do
0: the Just Act Natural walk while they walk past the chickens, you know, Mm -hmm. like pretend like we're supposed to be here. (laughs) And then uh, they get attacked by Satanus, the cat, and they have to hide among a bunch of cactus, which I thought was a cool idea. Yeah, yeah. And Pedro's dog Tipo eventually comes to the rescue, chases off Satanas. And here we get uh we here we get the movie, I guess, offering thoughts about how you would be treated differently if you were miniaturized by a cat versus by a dog.
1: Yeah, this was fun because I've I've heard this this many times before. People commenting that, okay, if you were to suddenly be uh you know an inch tall or whatever, um your your dog would still be your friend but your cat would just eat you immediately. And um, and I, I don't disagree with that principle, uh, though I, I do, if I'm going to seriously consider the question, I'm going to wonder if a dog would be able to recognize you uh, by sight or by smell in a miniaturized form. You, you, like If you start asking hard scientific questions about all of this. Yeah, I don't know. I I am a dog lover, but I kind of think the dog would eat you. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> yeah. Hmm. We, I guess it's, we're more inclined to believe and want to believe the dog would, would be like, oh, master, why are you so small? Let me help you. Whereas there's no doubt with the cat. Like the cat yeah. would be like, mm, sorry, the, the, the table has turned and you know what I have to do. The cat would 100% eat you. I feel
0: like I'm at about 80% and the dog would eat you.
1: Yeah. In a way, it's like that that slight level of uncertainty that makes it more terrifying. Like if you were suddenly miniaturized in your home, you'd be like, oh, crap, I got to avoid the cat at all costs because that is death. But then you're like, I don't know about the dog. The dog could be my savior, but the dog might just eat me anyway or at least put me in his mouth for a while.
0: Yeah, yeah. So after this, we get a a little interlude where we see the humans sort of adapting to their new scale, and it sort of turns into one of those recapitulation of the discovery of technology narratives. Like you Mm -hmm. get in uh, stories like the Swiss family Robinson. I think that's really part of the pleasure people get in a lot of castaway stories is they really like that, like watching people rebuild technological capability out of the materials available to them.
1: Yeah, like a Robinson Crusoe yeah. or, uh, uh, to a certain extent, Flight of the Phoenix was like that. Uh, mm-hmm. I think they remade it at some point. But the original was like a, uh, God, what was it, a B, not a B-24. It was a B, oh, it was a B-29, of course. B uh, B-29 uh, crashes in the desert, and then they have to uh, take it apart and, um, and try and build a new airplane out of this uh, four-prop uh, engine airplane and then fly out of the desert in it.
0: Yeah. So obviously the fact that this type of narrative recurs so much, I mean, I I do think it's clear that like some people really enjoy watching this sort of thing happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's some kind of fantasy fulfillment. And this movie has stuff kind of like this, except instead of a desert island where you're trying to recreate known uh, technology and solutions and stuff out of, I don't know, coconuts or whatever. Instead, it's on a tiny scale. So you see them figuring out how to use a needle as a giant drill or a scissor handle as a sword and stuff like that. That
1: oh man, you know I, I have to jump back in and say I'm mistaken. It was not a B29 in Flight of the Phoenix. It was a C82, but I'm I think I'm confusing it with some Disney film that came out where they the characters did a similar thing and turned a B29 into a, a sailing vessel of some sort. But oh. at, at any rate, it's a it's a trope. It's a fun uh, thing that you see in a lot of films. Is that Waterworld? Um, they might have had one of these uh, in Waterworld, but it was a, it was a different film that I don't think I ever saw. But <laughs> i vaguely remember the vhs no. box for it
0: wait it's the version of noah's ark made for uh, made with john voight i'm pretty sure that had some aircraft in it
1: actually i I've, I've, I've looked it up joe and it is the last flight of noah's ark from 1980 <laughs> it starred elliot gould um, and a b-29 the last flight of noah's ark you're not kidding I'm not kidding. That was the name. It was a Disney film. I don't think this one has been added to Disney plus yet. I, I, I was joking. The John
0: Voigt Noah's Ark does have pirates in it, but I don't recall aircraft.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway, back to miniaturized people. Um, they're, they're making tools. They're rediscovering what they can use for a weapon, etc. They're making new clothes, all while Dr. Thorkell is uh, is snoozing off his latest science bender.
0: Yeah. And, and when he does wake up from the science bender, he has got a bit of a science hangover. He's He's kind of he's kind of frisky, but he's also kind of mad. And he's like, what is he going to do with these, these, uh, with these shrunken people? And Dr. Bul- Bullfinch, uh, starts, he's still just like mouthing off to Thordel yeah. <laughs> He's like, he's like, we are prisoners in Cyclops cave. Again, uh, recalling the story from the Odyssey where, uh, where Ulysses or uh, he calls him Ulysses in the movie. Ulysses maybe better known today as Odysseus. Um, and his crew are are captured within the cave of Polyphemus, the the Cyclops on I don't remember on some island, and uh, and they have to find a way to escape. And they end up blinding the Cyclops by stabbing in the him in the eye. But Odysseus has said that his name is no one. So when uh, somebody comes to ask if uh, if the Cyclops needs help, the Cyclops says no one is hurting me.
1: Hmm.
0: Very clever. Yes. Uh, but Doctor Thorkel ends up catching Bullfinch in a net. Oh, after a part where where Bullfinch tells off a chicken, he's like, "Go away, you ridiculous fowl!" <laughs> and Bullfinch, as always, is extremely uncooperative. Thorkel is like, he brings him inside to measure him in in various ways, and then Thorkel expresses disappointment. This is privately just between him and Bullfinch. All the other people are still outside. Uh, he says, "You know what? Your bodies are growing. Uh, your bodies are reacting as if you have reverted to childhood, and you will." Eventually grow back to regular size and Thorkell, of course, can't allow this because then they would interfere with his work again. So Thorkel turns to murder once again. He he. We've seen him. We've seen him murder to solve a problem at the beginning of the movie. And his eyes. His eyes become cold, and he's like, "I'm going to do it again." And he gets a cotton swab and puts it in some kind of chemical and smothers Doctor Bullfinch with it and kills him. And there's like a giant fake hand for Bullfinch to be held in. It's pretty good.
1: It's a great scene. Um. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and again, very brutal. Uh. You know, d- d- despite the, the the sanitized nature of this film as a whole it's it's just a cold murder of the of this professor um you know, but also during this scene, I, I was thinking about what the, Dr. Thorkell said about how you're going to grow as if you were children into adult form again, which in this movie, all it means is you're going to get big again by the end of the film. And mm-hmm. the, and it's saying, like, if you had hidden, you would have just returned to normal anyway. But instead, you came back to me and now I will kill you. But I had a moment there where I was imagining, like, what does this mean? Well, if, because a baby is not like a miniature adult. You know, it changes a lot as it becomes a grown person. So I was trying to just contemplate, like, what would that mean if you were a miniaturized person and then you grew? Like, what monstrous full sized forms would they grow into? Are you going to have skull plates fusing together again? Like, what's going on? Like, so I, that was kind of a nightmare scenario that this film does not explore. But uh, I had a moment there where I was like, oh my God. Dr. Bullfinch, say hello to a second round of baby teeth. (laughs) Ah, I (laughs) refuse.
0: (laughs) Uh, and then, uh, so we mentioned that scene is kind of brutal. There's another, th- there's a lot of implied, like this is not a bloody film, but there's a lot of implied violence in it that is very brutal in its suggestion. So you see that the other humans after bullfinch is murdered, they're hiding in this big thicket of cactus and then Thorkell comes out and I guess he's trying to kill them and he starts chopping up the cactus with a shovel. It's messed up, but uh, but we find when he, he chops it all up and then finds they've escaped through a hole in the wall out into the jungle and Thorkell taunts them over the wall saying that they will never live half an hour out in the jungle. And sure enough, there comes along a storm, which again, think about how terrifying of a threat a storm would be if you were tiny, if you were like you know six inches tall or a foot tall or whatever this is.
1: Yeah. I mean, just on top of the, the jungle itself, like when, when Thorkel said that, I was like, no, he's absolutely right. Like to yeah. go into the jungle at this size is just death. Like everything is going to potentially eat you. Yeah. But then on top of that, the storm.
0: Right. And again, this comes back to the, to the Haldane essay I mentioned earlier on being the right size. The the thing about how when you're when you have a, a very a much larger surface area to mass ratio as smaller creatures do there are advantages to that. Like you can fall off of a roof and probably not be hurt because you know, the, uh, the amount of air resistance uh, provided by the surface of your body will be enough to keep you going pretty slow actually, as you fall compared to the mass in your body. But the downsides are like getting wet is a terrifying proposition when you are tiny, like the, the surface tension of water clings to you like a kind of slime. Mm Mm-hmm. And so imagine, yeah, you're, you're out in the jungle and the rain is coming down and there's rivulets everywhere. It's very scary. Um, so they end up coming across a boat in a river later on and they uh, try to use technology to free it and they get attacked by a crocodilian. I think it's a crocodile, might have been an alligator. I, I didn't check the nose shape too well. But the crocodile attack sequence is great. They're trying to fend it off with fire, but they've got these like little tiny sticks that are on fire that are just not enough fire. Yeah, they're just kind of dropping it uh, on the the creature and it doesn't seem to particularly care. Yeah, and then eventually after they chase it off by throwing a bunch of flaming sticks on it, uh, Thorkell returns. He comes and finds them. And again, it's brutal. He... uh, Pedro heroically leads his dog away from them, uh, drawing off the, the smell, and, uh, and so he, he saves the rest of the people, but Thorkell sees him and shoots him. And so Pedro has been murdered, and then after that, the, the rest of the people are hiding in some grass, and Thorkell starts stomping through the grass. And then uh, when he can't find them, he burns the grass
1: yeah so there's this inferno uh, uh, that he he starts here, just f- trying to flush them out, yeah. uh, but it doesn't quite work because they find another place that they can hide themselves
0: right, they stow away in his specimen box, the box that he was going to put them in when he found them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Robinson, Stockton, and Steve, the mule guy, are the three people left alive, and they ride back in this box to Thorkel's hut. And once they get there, they get out and uh, Stockton decides, no, I'm going to stand my ground this time. I'm not going to try to escape. We've got to kill Thorkel," and the other two agree. So first they try to aim a shotgun, like a cannon at his pillow in mm-hmm. his bed, uh, but then Thorkell doesn't go to bed instead he falls asleep in his chair and then it really gets into the blinding of Polyphemus in the Odyssey because they steal his glasses. Remember it said at the beginning that uh, he called them there because his eyes were so damaged he really couldn't see without his glasses and they uh, they know where he keeps his extra pairs of glasses because they find them when they're going through his stuff earlier
1: and they hide those. Yeah, they stick them through like a hole in the floor the wall. So now he has the, you know, the only only the one pair and uh, they remove those as well. So, yeah, suddenly you have this uh, this blinded polyphemus uh, trope going on here.
0: Yeah. And so Thorkel is enraged. He's smashing, you know, he's running around trying to destroy them. Uh, he does recover one pair of glasses, but one of the lenses is smashed. And he says, now you can call me Cyclops because I have one good eye.
1: Thank you for being clear about the title of the film, Dr. Thorkell.
0: I think they could have done without that. Yeah. Uh, But so there's a final confrontation Uh, in, in the end, uh, I I won't spoil exactly how it happens, but there is, they are victorious. They end up, uh, they end up defeating Dr. Cyclops here. And in the end, uh, the, the three remaining characters, they regrow to full size and they travel back to civilization. And the main things now we find are that Stockton and Robinson are now in love because of course, and we find that Steve, the mule guy does not like cats. He, like he sees a cat back in the, the town they go to and he's like, scram.
1: Well, maybe you remember this. Uh, I watched it last week and I think you watched it this, this morning. Did we ever get any real payoff with Satanus? No. Uh, like, like no. it's not like they had a big throwdown with the, like they didn't have a big fight with the cat. They didn't have to like slay the cat or I think the dog just chased Satanus off and that was it. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't have to kill the cat because I mean, the cat's just being a cat. It's true. Yeah, I mean, but, but I also wonder like, was that, like maybe something they wanted to do, but they just didn't have the effects. Like it, maybe that was just too much of an effects ask to have like a big fight with a giant cat. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, because of, you know there there were films that that uh, you know that would later go more in that direction of having you know the, the cat to aggressively uh, go after uh, tiny humans. Well, like Cat's
0: Eye, the one you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, not a tiny human, a a, a an evil troll. I and mean, the cat yeah. there is the hero going. That's uh, right. The, the evil yeah. tiny monster.
1: So, yeah, this is this is absolutely a, a fun film. Um, uh, you know, there's not not a you know, tremendous amount of depth to it. There's not a, a huge amount of monster science to discuss about it. I mean, you can take various things. You can certainly get really pedantic on the idea of miniaturizing organisms. And then how does that miniaturized organism uh, react uh, and, um, and and fit in with an, with an immediate environment that it was not miniaturized? Uh, And depending on how small you go, those problems can be, you know, can be quite extreme. Uh, But then there are other directions as well. Um, You know, we found this interesting paper that we were both looking at um, titled Human Engineering and Climate Change by uh, Lau, Sandberg and Roche. This was from uh, 2012, pu- published in Ethics, Policy, and Environment. And it's a pretty wild read. You can find it for uh, for free uh, on, on online. I think we found it at uh, blc.arizona.edu. And uh, one of the things they get into is, like, if you were to shrink humans down, they would have less of an environmental footprint. So it would ultimately <laughs> be better for the environment.
0: <laughs> this paper is absolutely – this is something Dr. Thorkell would write. I started reading it and I was just like, what? It, it is interesting, but it is nuts. <laughs> uh, and I don't know. I mean, it seems like there, there may be more direct things that could be done about climate change than saying, like, hey, what if we were to shrink humans so that they consume fewer resources?
1: Yeah, uh, there, there, there are other levers we should pull first, certainly. Uh, we shouldn't take the Thorkell, that path, the Thorkel way uh, on that particular problem. I
0: mean, it's at least got to go like solar panels before shrinking people.
1: Absolutely. All right. Well, you may be wondering where can I watch Doctor Cyclops? Well, uh, these things are always subject to change, but uh, we actually had a hard time f- tracking this one down. We couldn't find it streaming anywhere, or for digital purchase or rental. We couldn't even find a we couldn't find a physical rental either. So we actually bought it on special edition Blu-ray from KL Studio Classics, aka uh, Kino Lorber. It, uh, it's a brand new 4K master. It also has an audio commentary by film historian Richard Harlan Smith. I didn't I didn't have a chance to listen to it, but uh, it it sounds like it would be pretty cool. Uh, The box art on this one is great, Uh, unlike some of the other previous releases that have come out that had kind of like cheesy box art. Like this one has that uh, that weird probe mechanism in the center that is uh, lowered into the earth. You have a picture of of uh, of Dr. Thorkell there with uh, it looks like lasers coming out of his eyes. It's pretty Mm -hmm. good. Yeah, it's really good art. But then again, this is also a classic film by a notable director so it 's it's, it's entirely possible you might be able to catch this one on uh, you know one of like i don 't know Turner classic movies or something to that effect uh, i know we we heard from some people after we did our episode on Mad Love uh, chiming in and saying oh they 're showing Mad Love tonight, so who knows maybe check your local listings is what i 'm saying well let 's do it then let 's go ahead and, uh, and call it done we're done with Dr. Cyclops here, but this was a this was a fun one to watch, a fun one to discuss. And if uh, if you would like to listen to us discuss other films, you can catch other episodes of Weird House Cinema every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. So our core episodes are, are about science and culture, and those published on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We do an artifact episode on Wednesdays, listener mail on Mondays. But Friday, uh, that's when we get to cut loose and discuss some sort of a weird cinematic gem, uh, generally from yesteryear.
0: That's right, so keep tuning in. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer seth nicholas johnson if you would like to get in touch with us to let us know feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com. stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio.